that. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for the prayers. That really, really means a lot. Now, watching that blooper video, I realized, though, that, you know, a lot of times we have to look back at our old yearbook to see examples of weird hair. I feel like all I have to do is look back a few months ago, see that, ugh, man, it got out of control. Barbers, you are important people, all right? Very needed, never realized how, man, never take you guys for granted again. Well, it is a privilege to join with you as always, whether you are here or at home, we get to come together and celebrate Jesus. And that, is, that is a joy uh, that I hope um, we are all feeling this morning. And today we're going to be jumping into Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, if you have your own Bible, if you brought your Bible, if you want to open up your phone, whatever, uh, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be, which is a major turning point or a watershed moment in the life of the early church where they're wrestling with this central question, what is really required for someone to belong to God? Pretty important question, wouldn't you say? Now, if I put out an exam right now. Some people got a little nervous just saying that, but I'm not going to. But if I did, if I put out an exam right now, and the only question on that exam was, how is it that someone is saved, or what is required for someone to belong to Jesus? I'm pretty confident that a lot of you, if not most of you, would get an A plus on that exam. Because it's a good evangelical church. We say every Sunday in a variety of ways, we're saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for us alone, right? And theologically, theoretically, like, we're right on. But in practice, in reality, it's not always quite so clear. Consider this. So when I was a kid, I went to this, my family and I went to this uh, big old Baptist church in southern Georgia. Every Sunday that church preached, you're saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done alone. Well, one day, the youth pastor of that church decided he wanted to reach out to the impoverished and disadvantaged kids in town. But he realized that in order for them to come and be a part of the youth group, it was a transportation problem. So he, need, he got a couple of the church vans and went and picked up a bunch of these kids and brought them to church. And pretty soon, as he kept doing this, there were a lot of new faces that kept showing up at the church. They looked different. They spoke differently, and because they were new to the whole church thing, they didn't know how to, quote-unquote, behave properly. Well, some of the existing church members started to get a little nervous. Started asking, like, well, are our kids safe? What's going to happen to the culture of our church if, if we keep letting these things... What, what would happen to the traditions if we open the doors wide to this particular group of people. Do you see the tension? So they started saying, well, should we require that they dress properly before they can come and be a part of us? Should we place certain extra conditions upon how they should behave that we're not putting on other kids in order to make sure they know what to do in order to become like us? Are you starting to see the rub here? 
You are saved by the grace of what God has done alone. You belong to Him. But if you want to belong to us, you need to become a bit more like us first. You must take on our habits, do what we do. And I lay all that out because this is exactly or pretty close to how the Jewish Christians felt in Acts 15. Because leading up to Acts 15, as we've watched the last several chapters following through this series, we've seen a lot of non-Jewish Greeks, Romans, and others coming to faith in Jesus. It's exciting. In places like Antioch and South Galatia, Southern Galatia on Paul's first missionary journey there. But now that a lot of the Jewish Christians are seeing these, these, these previously pagan Gentiles coming into the church, they're starting to get a little bit nervous about the future of things. That's causing them to say, well, what really is required for someone to belong to God? And this sets up a pretty nice debate. So there's the question. What is required for somebody to know, for someone to belong to God, for someone to truly be saved? This is a major moment in the life of the early church. But what, just like I laid out for you, every church of every generation has to come back to this question and wrestle with it again. Not just in theology, but also in practice. And so what, what I'm going to do is this passage has been particularly challenging for me to try to unpack. So I need prayer <laughs> for it. So if you will uh, pray or pray as I pray um, and uh, we will jump right in. So God, I pray as we start into this passage that you open up our hearts and our minds and allow us to see what it is that you want us to see. God, something that uh, in our church we've, we've preached so often that we're saved by grace through faith and what you've done alone. But God, show us what that looks like lived out in our lives individually and for us as a church community. God, we are yours and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer in whom we trust. And everybody said... Amen. All right. In, in order to try to help us understand this passage, I'm not going to just read through the whole thing in one fail swoop like I normally do, but I'm going to break it up in chunks. And so read it a few verses at a time, unpack it a bit, and then move on to the next, because I think that'll help us all follow the progression a little bit easier. But as I read this, again, we're setting, there's a debate in the early church. And what I want you to ask yourself is if you for a Jewish Christian in that day, which side of the debate would you take? All right? File that away real quick and read with me Acts 15, just the first five verses for now. Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1. A little background before I jump in here. We're in Antioch. Some Jewish Christians are coming up from Judea and Jerusalem, claiming to be from the elders and apostles in Jerusalem, showing up, and they got some things they need to tell the Gentile Christians. Here we go. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. All right. Lines have been drawn. You see, there's Paul and Barnabas, and over here you've got Christians belonging to the Pharisee party. Both sides have their defense. Both are convinced. Both can't be right. But my question is, what is the real source of tension underneath the debate? What is really going on below the surface at the heart level? See, there's always been the temptation to believe that faith in God's grace isn't really enough. Let me say that again. There's always been the temptation to believe that faith in God's grace isn't really enough. So after a tough but exciting first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas get back from traveling around southern Galatia, seeing all these Gentiles come to know Christ, and they show up to Antioch where there's a big problem. Because there are some Jews who, Jewish Christians who have come up from Jerusalem, shown up to these Gentile Christians in Antioch, and now they're telling them, Paul is wrong, you're not really Christians yet. That if you want to really be a Christian, you must be First, be circumcised, ouch, and then agree to the law of Moses. In other words, trusting in Jesus is part of it, but you must keep the law of Moses beginning with circumcision. Let me put it another way. If you want to follow Jesus, you must first adopt the Jewish lifestyle. You tracking with me? See, and when Paul heard this, he was beat red mad. And it says he has some words <laughs> for these guys. But then he decided that he and Barney have to go down to Jerusalem to really solve the issue. And so when they get to Jerusalem, they talk to the apostles and the elders there. And they share their experiences and their stories. And then they realize, uh-oh, there's actually a pretty large group of people here in Jerusalem from the party of the Pharisees who believe the same thing. Now, if your first reaction is like mine, I immediately want to jump on the Paul fan train. Choo-choo! Go Paul! Right? But then I had to stop and ask, wait, if I was a Jewish Christian in that day, would I be so quick to side with him? Because put yourself in the sandals of a Pharisee Christian for a moment. The law of Moses was given 1,500 years before this moment. Their daddy and their daddy's daddy and their daddy's daddy's daddy all followed this going way back. At eight days old, these men were circumcised and from that moment taught to take pride in the tradition and heritage as the chosen people of God. 
Their best memories were the Jewish festivals with family and friends. And as long back as they can remember, they were rigorously educated in the law. When they were a boy, they went through their bar mitzvah, which means son of the law. And when they received the robes of a Pharisee, they accepted the responsibility to now teach the nation the law. But see, the whole reason why this was so crucial to them was because they strongly believed that if, that if God's people would just turn back to obeying the law, then, then there would be a major revival or reformation in their nation and they would see God bless them again. So you see, their love for the law and their, was tied intimately with their love for their people. And I lay that out because it's easy for us to think, oh man, these are just the bad guys. These are the, the, the Pharisees are always the, you know, those working against God. But do we realize that so much of what they did was actually out of a love for their nation, a love for their people? But where did they miss it? See, it's so easy for any of us to slip into thinking that we can follow rules in place of a relationship. It's so easy for us to substitute relationship for rules. See, the law was actually a gift from God. The law was an expression of God's love to his people who had just come out of an enslaved background. They had no idea how to govern themselves, how to take care of themselves. And so God and Mount Sinai, he gave them this law so that they might stay healthy, free, and distinguished from the other nations. But somewhere along the way, the law became, instead of a way Instead of an expression of God's law, of God's love, excuse me, it became a way by which they can earn God's love. They went from recognizing that the law, God loved them, so he asked them to obey him. But they started thinking that they must obey him in order for God to love them. Do you catch the distinction? The difference? It's like, a loving parent. A loving parent gives their kids rules, right? Why? Because they want their kid to earn their love? No, because they love their kids. They want their kids to grow up with self-control and being able to regulate their emotions and they know how to act honestly and have healthy relationships. But kids can easily slip into the mindset of thinking I have to obey mom and dad in order for them to love me. That I have to do enough good and avoid enough bad in order to be accepted. Have any of you felt that way towards God before? Some of you have even grown up, I know, in traditions that explicitly taught that. That taught you have to jump through hoops if you want God to love you, to accept you. Do you ever feel like the divine approval rating goes up and down with your behavior? 
I have. But Paul is saying this is a distortion of who God is. That who God is, as he recognized that when we all fell short of a holy life, God came in love to do what we could not. That despite all the ways we've screwed up and fallen short consistently, that Jesus satisfied the righteous requirements of the law in his life and then became the perfect sacrifice for us in his death that we might be forgiven and set free. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians, and by the way, if you really want to dig in to what Paul thinks, just read the book of Galatians. But he announces a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But this is not what I was taught growing up. Kirk, I was taught that I had to earn it, that I had to keep going to church, that I had to do X, Y, and Z for God to be happy with me. But that's not what Scripture says. But Kirk, that's not the way the world works. Everything in this world is about earning in order to get. But just because something is in the world's economy doesn't mean that's the way it is in God's economy. Because there is nothing we can do to possibly earn his love. So he made a way of grace. Therefore, Paul says, when we place our faith, our trust in his grace, we are his. In other words, your father loves you right now as much as he ever will. And his love is unfathomable. Faith is learning to rest in the loving arms of your father. Instead of feeling like you have to do ten things before he will love you. Are you guys tracking with me? I've been praying all week that sinks into your heart. That sinks in and starts transforming the way you see yourself, the way you see God, the way that you see his love for you. But if we still insist on adding something extra to grace to be saved, where will it lead us? If we still live like God's love is conditioned by our performance, what happens to our relationship with him and our relationship with other people? See, when we add extra conditions to belong to God, we've replaced life-giving relationship with a self-made religion. I don't think you guys caught that. When we add extra conditions to belong to God, we've replaced life-giving relationship with a self-made tradition. Again, imagine that you're in the shoes of the Pharisee Christians. All your life you've given to the law of Moses. The Jewish culture has been at the center of your life. And then a bunch of previously pagan Gentiles come waltzing into the family. They do not share your background. They do not share your traditions. They do not rank their values in the same order that you do. How might you feel? Well, number one, I've been spending years praying, studying, Fasting while they were out worshiping idols and they just get to come on in? It's similar to the attitude of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son when 
The prodigal son finally comes home. And the father embraces him. The older brother says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. What do I get out of this? But also, what are these new people going to do to my traditions? What are they going to do to that sense of nostalgia that I've held on to? What, what are they going to do to my positions? What's going to happen to the Jewish festivals? Are you telling me the temple doesn't matter anymore? What, 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 what is going to happen to the moral and cultural fabric of this whole movement if we let them in without other conditions? What's going to happen to my position of respect if all of a sudden the church starts getting crowded with people who don't see things like me? And when Jesus is opening the doors wide to people different from us, are we quick to celebrate or make sure they play by the rules? Yeah, let the new people come in. It's great. As long as they don't change anything. Is our first reaction to new people joy or suspicion? The Pharisee Christians thought, well, they must become like us before we'll accept them as one of us. They must become Jewish before they belong to Christ. They must go through Moses in order to get to Jesus. So instead of coming with open arms, we slip into a role of guardian of our way. We become a law enforcer, skilled at discerning other people's faults, but not always so aware of our own. And man, I'll tell you, nothing kills joy in a community of Christ followers more than law enforcers. I mean, imagine the joy in Antioch. All these new Christians are saved by the grace of God, and then in come these Jewish Christians like wet blankets on a fire. Saying, <laughs> well, you cute. You don't know what it is to be a Christian. And all of a sudden, whoosh. It's similar to imagine if my father-in-law came up on Shelby's and my wedding day. And instead of congratulating us, he handed me a contract. And he says, here are the customs and the laws and the traditions that you will maintain if you want to become and maintain a member of this family. What would that do to your joy? But God is clear. We do not have the authority to add anything to the requirements of salvation other than what he himself has made clear. Let's see how Peter responds. Let's read Acts 15 verses 6 to 11. So now they have formed a council in Jerusalem. The apostles and the elders are gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been 
and able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. What is Peter saying? Well, first... He's saying salvation by grace through faith wasn't man's idea, it's God's. So he says from the very beginning, he says, When I came to the Gentiles, remember all the way back from Acts 10, where he showed up to Cornelius. God did not say, Cornelius, you must be circumcised before I fill you with the Spirit. God saw his faith, filled him with the Spirit, and cleansed his heart. Peter says, that's not something I decided, that's something God did. I'm just a witness of what he's doing. Paul said the same thing in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12. He says, the gospel I'm preaching to you is not one that I made up because I want the Gentiles to like me. This, I received this from Jesus. In other words, if you are acting like a law enforcer, you are enforcing a law that the lawgiver never gave. But second, Peter says, That if you're going to be a law enforcer, you're going to have to enforce a law that you yourself can't keep. (laughs) He says to them, why are you placing a yoke or burden on the neck of these disciples, these Gentile Christians that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter says, I haven't been able to fulfill the law perfectly. I've never been saved by following the law. So why are you acting like they, this is something they have to live up to? And if we insist on being judges, law enforcers in the midst of the church, we will have to keep, hold other people to a standard that we ourselves can't maintain. Because we all fall short. We all cannot live up to it. But then in a statement that's not out of frustration or anger. I feel like I, you can read Peter's heart in this because he's speaking to them all as brothers. He says to them, first off, he says, first off, God has made no distinction between us and them. He says, if you're treating followers of Jesus in the church as I got my people and then there are those people over there in the church, he says, that's wrong. That is sin. That is division, and that is not from God. And then he says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. What's he saying? No matter where you are, where you come from, what language you speak, we all belong to God the same way. That deserves a celebration. That deserves a celebration. That none of us, nobody, is able to earn salvation through your own works. That it is simply a matter of grace. That we are a people of grace. And our only hope for salvation is that God would possibly show us grace. And guess what? He did. When Jesus came to do what we could not. And so now, now, see the Pharisee Christians, their vision for the church was as big as Israel. That was it. 
All they could see was that this was going to be a reformation movement for their nation. But Paul says, oh, God has much bigger plans than that. This is going to be an international movement that is going to go across all cultures, backgrounds, languages, united in one celebration that each of us are only rescued and given life by the grace of God. That's another clapping moment. That is, that, I mean, that, that, is, that is what we celebrate every Sunday. And when we finally stop trying to make sense of why we deserve his love and his grace, and we start recognizing that this is true for who we are and who our God is, only the grace of God can free us from duty-bound religion to a relationship of love. My faith rests in what he's done for me, not what I've done. My loyalty is not in a belief or a tradition. It is in the person of Jesus. My rest is in his love for me, and therefore I am free not to control you, but to love you. My relationship with God is true and real. I do not need a mediator for it to be real. Jesus is my mediator. And so the Jerusalem council wraps up with James, who's a half-brother of Jesus and is a well-respected bishop of the church in Jerusalem, who stood up saying, brothers, listen to me. And when James spoke, people listened. People listened. He says, Simeon, which was Peter's Aramaic name. This is Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So right then and there, he's saying the Gentiles are already a people for his name. He says, I can't deny what is the work of God. James is not deciding how people will be saved. He is recognizing what God has already done. And he says, that's even confirmed in Scripture. And he quotes from Amos chapter 9, saying, this was God's plan all along. And then he turns, and like the wise reconciler that he was, he speaks to each group in the debate. And he first starts with the Pharisee brothers. And he says to them, stop trying to add conditions to God's grace. Verse 19, he says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't police them. Treat them as brothers and sisters. Don't worry about the moral fabric of what's going to happen. Because the reality is the Holy Spirit lives in them too. Pray for them. Support them. Encourage them, point them toward Jesus, not to just be like you. But then James is also aware of a practical problem. Because if Gentiles and Jews are going to act like brothers and sisters, they're going to come up against some problems. It's one thing to theoretically say, we're all brothers and sisters, this is great. It's another thing to actually love each other (laughs) as brothers and sisters. No amens there? Okay. (laughs) But see, so next, James, speaking to the Gentile Christians, I'll sum it up. He says, you are free from the law, yes, but I'm asking you to limit some freedoms in order to show love. 
So if, if Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are to exist at the same table together, then the Gentile Christians need to understand and know how to respect the conscience of the Jewish Christians. And so he says, here are three things that these are not conditions of salvation. These are just admonitions. If you want to show love to your Jewish brother, here are some things you need to do. He says in verse 20, First, abstain from things polluted by idols. You come from pagan idolatry. Stay away from it if you, if you want to have fellowship with them because that's detestable to a Jew. Stay away from sexual immorality. Go, go at it God's way. Go at it God's way. I know the pagan temples are filled with it, but for the sake of your brother, stop it. And for the sake of God. <laughs> Number three, stay away from anything strangled and from blood that Jews were repulsed by blood. It was part of the law. It made them unclean. In other words, treat your brother and sister the way that you would like to be treated. So he's not adding laws, but he's showing them here's how to build a gospel bridge of mutual understanding, kindness, patience. And that is exactly the servant heart of Jesus that leads us as a church toward unity. See, the law may be able to create the appearance of nice people, but only a gospel of grace can transform us to become people of love like Jesus. So what is required for us to belong to God? Faith in the grace of God what he has done in Jesus alone. Jesus is enough. This council in Jerusalem then set the course for the church to now explode beyond the culture, to go out in the spirit of God and his power to the world. One Lord, one church, one faith, one baptism in the grace of Jesus alone. But as I wrap this up, I want to ask you, do you feel like you experience the joy of God? Or do you feel like you consistently have to earn and deserve his love? Do you come to God confident in who you are and who he and his love for you? Or is your first thought when you come to God like all trying to justify your reason to even come before him? What would it look like if right here, right now, you just said, God, I recognize that your love for me can never be any different than what it is right now. And your love is greater than anything I could possibly fathom. And for us as a church, as we wrestle with what it means to be a community of grace, my challenge personally is how can I tear down any unnecessary obstacles to Jesus? How can I learn to understand you, my brothers and sisters, in order to build gospel bridges so that we might be unified together? 
How can we learn to open our ears, to, 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 to go where people are, to speak to their language so that they hear the gospel for themselves? We live in a culture that is often called a cancel culture, which if you don't measure up or if you disagree with me, you're done. But a gospel culture says kindness leads to repentance. It says, no, I'm going to love you as my Father has loved me. And so my prayer for my life is that God would show me how to love with kindness and understanding in order to build a bridge toward, not me, Jesus. Jesus is enough. His grace is sufficient. He's calling us to a deeper trust and rest in what he has done. So let's respond now. Jesus, we give you all of those voices in our minds that tell us that we're not enough, that we ought to do more, that, 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 that you do not really love or care about us, that, that there, there's, there's five more hoops we got to jump through if we're really going to arrive at being a real Christian. God, we say that that is not from you, that you have called us, you love us, and it is out of a, a confidence in your love that we live and we obey and we live grateful lives. And so, God, will you transform us, each of us individually, and show us as a church how can we consistently open our arms wide, rejoice with those who come to know you, that we might experience your salvation just pour out across this community. We love you. We praise you. This is about you. (laughs) And Jesus, you are enough. In Jesus' name. Amen.